Hello and welcome to Health Outreach Partners podcast series, The COVID-19 Pandemic and What It Taught Us. In this eight-part series, we'll hear from subject matter experts on the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, particularly its effects on mental health and well-being. In each episode, you'll hear from different members of our healthcare workforce, community members, and Health Outreach Partners' own team about challenges and lessons learned from the pandemic. We appreciate the importance of reflection and recognition on the profound impacts COVID-19 and the pandemic response efforts have had on our lives and on our mental health. We are excited to share lessons learned from our esteemed guests and imagine a safer, healthier world for all. My name is Cindy Selmy. I'm the Executive Director of Health Outreach Partners, and I'm excited to be leading today's conversation focused on the role of health-centered leadership throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. Community health centers have played an essential role in ensuring that underserved populations have access to care. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, community health centers provided information about prevention and safety guidelines, promoted vaccines, combated misinformation, and partnered with others to support the social needs of patients and communities. The Herculean feats accomplished during the COVID-19 response came together as a result of the incredible teams in clinics, hospitals, and so many other roles. These teams were supported and guided by center leadership, and we are excited to hear about the role of leadership and how it has changed as a result of the pandemic. In this episode, we'll hear from two talented and accomplished health center leaders about their experiences during the pandemic, what they learned during the response efforts, and how they are supporting their community health center's workforce as we move forward. Rhonda Hoff is the CEO of Yakima Neighborhood Health Services, a fully integrated community health center with 10 locations in the Yakima Valley of Washington. Prior to her appointment as CEO, Rhonda spent the last 36 years at Yakima Neighborhood Health Services, where she has been instrumental in growing the breadth of services offered, especially to key populations such as the homeless, older adults, and Latinos. Stepping into the role as CEO at the height of the pandemic, Rhonda has guided Yakima Neighborhood Health Services through numerous challenges and changes throughout the response efforts. We'll also be joined by David Vliet. David is the CEO of Lifelong Medical, a multi-county, $100 million plus community health center system based in Berkeley, California. David has been a leader at various health centers in both California and in Texas. Throughout his career, he has been a staunch advocate for diversity and inclusion. Welcome, Rhonda and David. I'm really honored to be talking to you both today. I feel like this is a particularly special conversation for me as we all began in our current roles, either right before or during the pandemic. Talk about building the plane in the air while we're flying it. While HOP is not a health center, we work really closely with health centers as well with other health systems. And we felt the extreme stress you all were under at this time. 
When I first came to HOP and was faced with having to close the organization during the pandemic, I was particularly challenged by this decision as I came from a health center and closing the health center was really never a thought for us. And I um, really had those feelings. So given that, David, you came into your role in January of 2020. Can you describe from a leadership and administrative perspective how your health center initially responded to the pandemic? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Good to see uh, and hear you, um, Cindy, and talk with you. Yeah, that's a really, that's a big question, the credit question of the day. And of course, none of us knew what we were facing in that really in, in mid-March when in California, at least, and really across the country, we began to recognize that we're going to have to shut operations down and deal with this pandemic in a, in a real way. And it was scary. Um, I had been on this job just, I came in on the like early part of January, and I actually had what I think was early, like an early COVID um, experience sometime at the end of February and uh, was already a little bit off balance um, when we began to you know, deal with the realities of, of what this meant for us, particularly as a health center and as a, a safety net provider. And so there was just a lot of, I love jazz. People know me know I love jazz and improvisation is part of jazz, but it's actually a, it's actually a structured approach to music, even though it seems like it's not. And I think that was the, the, the analogy here was that we tried to bring structure and an approach to what we were doing, even though we we really uh, it was new to us and there was a lot of spontaneity that that happened in in the midst of of all that we were facing, and and most importantly, our focus was how we address the needs of our employees. Um, right, I mean, we all know uh, you tell the health center story across the country. We quickly cut over from inpatient visits to um, televisits. We had the support of the state in order to do that and be reimbursed. And that in of itself was a, a huge change. We had just gone on our new uh, health record in, in early January, basically, um, epic to epic, right at the time of when the pandemic hit during that window. So we were dealing kind of with a double whammy. Uh, and uh, but But importantly, what we wanted to do was make sure that we had the tools to still take care of the community that we're, that we're charged with caring for and make sure that we were supporting staff during a really difficult time with a lot of unknown territory. So our, say our, I would say our approach was we tried to be flexible. We tried to hear what our colleagues and be dialed into what others were doing across the country. And we um, importantly tried to make sure that our staff felt supported I can't say that they all felt that way. I've gotten feedback that they didn't necessarily, um, but we were definitely trying to make sure that the people that we're responsible for caring for are, as administrators, were, were cared for during that time. And I'm sure there's a lot to be desired, but we learned a lot about what it means to take care of staff, uh, I think, in a meaningful way. Thank you for sharing that, David. Um, I will also agree that I learned some of those lessons as well throughout the pandemic. Rhonda, you began your role as the CEO of Yakima Neighborhood Health Services in October of 2020, but prior to that, you are already functioning in a leadership position. Can you describe some of the lessons learned and observed from leadership during this time? Yes, well, again, thank you for having me also. Uh, you know, Yakima 
we really saw our first case of COVID uh, at the beginning of March. And then for the next several months, we were the hotspot of the West Coast for COVID. And a big part of that was that uh, we have a large number of uh, essential workers, whether it's in healthcare or in the agricultural industry. So um, I had, you know, I was the uh, chief operating officer here for the first 38 years and then moved into uh, the CEO role during the height of that. And I would say sort of like what David just said, um, you know, in the first days, we really focused inward on our patients and our staff to try to put our systems in place. And, you know, we, we also were just implementing telehealth, but our patients were not interested in telehealth. And um, we watched a lot of our partner organizations in the community send all of their staff home and develop a telehealth infrastructure. That just wasn't us. We did parking lot medicine. Um, our, I have an amazing chief medical officer who's, who's been, uh, you know, arm in arm with me since she started in 1996. I have a lot of other really great senior leadership team members. And um, we knew that that was not going to work for us to have people working remotely. And so we really didn't have anybody working from home. Um, we put a lot of effort into building, you know, barriers and PPE infrastructure and we had to, you know, one of the things that we really had to put together quickly was dealing with um, just education for our staff. We had a lot of staff that were really afraid of the pandemic or what it was, uh, what it wasn't, even our most seasoned staff. And then, you know, putting together how do we do care in the parking lot where the exam room literally drives away after the visit. We had a, a certain number of um, negative pressure rooms, but not enough because our patients didn't stop coming. You know, they were afraid and they wanted to hear it from the people they trusted the most, and that was our staff. Um, the other kind of wrinkle that was challenging for us is we are a healthcare for the homeless grantee. And we also, in addition to uh, providing street medicine and outreach and healthcare for the homeless, we have 90 units of permanent supportive housing. Some of that is congregate housing, some of that is a care that we provide to our partner organizations and the shelters. And then we also have a medical respite program, which is recuperative care for people experiencing homelessness. And um, shortly uh, after, after the beginning of the pandemic, as, as you know, part of our partnerships with, is with the public health department and with our Office of Emergency Medicine, or emergency management, sorry. And we started talking about what are we going to do about all of these, all of the agricultural workers and our people and our people experiencing homelessness and just plain poor people that can't isolate. And so we started talking about what we needed to do to help them. And they started describing the infrastructure they were looking for. And I raised my hand and I said, I think you're describing our medical respite program. And that was about in May of 2020. And from that point forward, our county, our entire county contracted with us to provide isolation and quarantine for all of Yakima County. And so we rented a motel and, and basically provided care then for the county for not only the homeless population, but also for our agricultural workers. But that, you know, that talk about, you know, putting the plane together while you're in the air. I mean, that's sort of what we did. 
And so I think that, you know, it was really being, uh, going with both of your metaphors, it was improvising uh, and, and really developing the systems in response to what the community need was. And, uh, you know, it was uh, maintaining that sense that, yes, whatever needs to be done, we can do it. And it is the community health center way. But I think that, um, you know, looking at the, the additional uh, needs of, you know, how does this work in congregational housing? How does this work in a shelter? And what are we going to do to, you know, make sure we're addressing the needs, not only of, of the patients that are coming to us, but our staff, many of which, uh, you know, in our neighborhood and in our community, a lot of our staff people come from the communities of which we serve. And that's probably true of a lot of community health centers that we're dealing with a lot of the same learning needs among our staff as we were from the patients that we served. And so we had a, you know, we had a, a lot of different um, challenges when we, one more thing with that, when we first started even contemplating whether or not we could have a remote workforce, we almost saw that as an issue of social justice, because not all of our staff could work in a HIPAA compliant uh, environment. And we, we, in our leadership discussion said, you know, if we can't do it for everyone, we shouldn't do it for anyone. And so we're the best that we felt that, and the right thing to do was to make sure that we could provide all the protections in the clinic uh, because the patients were certainly coming here and the staff, we wanted them to feel safe and provide the real-time information and education for them to be able to get the information uh, in-house that we could provide to all of our staff and to all of our patients. And in the end, I think we did the right thing. Thank you for sharing that, Rhonda. David, I am, as a follow-up to what Rhonda said, how did Lifelong and your team address with the staff around remote work? Well, yeah, we really went all in, and I really appreciate the thinking that um, Rhonda and her team shared. We we have similar type of services. We have some respite services, and uh, and they're relatively new. In, in addition to the fact we have relatively new substance use and disorder um, programs that have been become part of Lifelong fairly recently. So we were kind of off balance on how to handle and even leverage um, some of those services that we currently have in a way that I think is really admirable that that they did at Yakima in terms of the thoughtful thinking there. And it really does illustrate, just let the record show, how the counties tend to look at FQHCs in many cases and depend on us as if we're part of the public health infrastructure. Well, I don't think we're going to deny that we're not. Um, we're, we're community health, but we're, we're clearly part of the safety net. So those, those challenges are, are real. And we, we um, scrambled and quickly put in, you know, as much as we could protocols around remote work. We, uh, we're based in Berkeley, Richmond, and Oakland, California, and we did find that our staff, you know, I like to say we hired the, we, 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 uh, hired the community to serve the community. What we found was that our staff really wanted to be close to their families, needed to be home while we were trying to manage our patient population. So um, we quickly, as I mentioned before, we cut over and did as much, you know, telehealth as possible. We use a lot of technology actually to reach our patients where they where we hadn't before using our text platform. And we found that the remote approach to care particularly was effective with our behavioral health services because folks were 
very much isolated and we were really worried about being able to get to them. And, and it felt like the uh, remote approach allowed us to deliver behavioral health services, you know, and, and during a time when it was really needed. But the fact is, is that everybody was scared and there was, there was just so much fear about getting sick and, and how we even, you know, we, we had all, you know, there were PPE shortages. It just seemed like a, a real mess. And because we're largely in the urban core, um, not that that, that impacts how the disease spread, but, but we did feel like there was a, a responsibility to create options for our staff in terms of how they take, to take care of patients during, during the time. So um, it was a slow process in, in the beginning. Uh, we, we, I think we figured it out. We now have a, still a balance of remote versus inpatient care going on. And, and from an administrative perspective, I, I do feel like options are really important for, uh, for staff, clearly for patients. We see our patients coming back you know, in, in person, but there are folks that still want to do some of the work remotely and, and we're balancing that and still and have policies to support that where it's appropriate. Thank you for sharing that, David. Rhonda, tell me, through this pandemic, how has your leadership evolved? And what have you learned and what have you changed? Well, I think I've been very, a lot more intentional around more frequent communications with our staff uh, internally. We work hard to celebrate the little things. I think that we have really worked to listen to the staff uh, in terms of what their needs are. Uh, you know, I think staff morale has been con and continues to be a big issue. Uh, you know, we, I, I think the, the symbol of the fact that at least in Washington state, we are still under the PPE mandates. And I think to the physical appearance of that, when you walk in, whether it's into our medical clinic or the dental clinic, and you see your coworkers all decked out in full PPE, it, it's a constant reminder that we're still in a pandemic. So I think for us as the leadership team, to us, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a constant reminder that we still need to be lifting up our staff. A couple of things that we've done, you know, we, um, we have something that we call proud moments. And we, uh, we start up all of our leadership team meetings with proud moments. And it's just, it's recognition of the day-to-day -day things that people do to go out of their way to help either a patient or one another. And um, we typically put those in our staff newsletter and we, we go out of our way to recognize staff for those things. And we invite staff to call out their coworkers for those events. I think that that, you know, we have really elevated our proud moments for the staff. Uh, I think that, you know, being real about what we can do and what we can't do, I think has been really important. You know, not being overly optimistic. Uh, it's one of the things that uh, sometimes that, uh, I feel challenged by because I feel like that's part of my role is to always see the glass is half full, but I, I don't want to overdo it because I think that's uh, as a leader that that's something that we need to be weary of. And then, you know, one of the things that I, I actually am very proud of is that through all of this uh, in the community, we uh, collectively, our team has been recognized as being one of the strongest partners in our community. We are a medium-sized organization, but when it comes to serving the most vulnerable populations in our community, uh, I've just been amazed at the number of, of um, 
places where, where we have been recognized, individual staff members uh, being recognized for the way, the role that our, that our organization has played uh, and that we get called on, whether it's locally, um, by the county, by the state, even for really reaching the most vulnerable populations and continue to be called on to ask for help. And so we make a point, and then we make a point of uh, calling that out within the organization. Uh, I think the most, the most common thing I, that has been helpful is, you know, one of the things, because we can't, we have 10 sites in the Valley, some rural, some uh, urban mostly rural though, is that we wanted to make an opportunity to make sure the staff felt like they could be heard. And so a couple of years ago, we, uh, right after, shortly after the pandemic started, we we implemented an electronic suggestion box. And so um, that made it easier for staff, and it was anonymous, made it easier for staff to tell us things that mattered to them. And so we've done a lot of things. I mean, little things like music in the reception area, uh, comfortable chairs for people uh, that affected everybody. We we lightened up on our dress code. You know, some things cost money, some things don't, but the appreciation and the, the acknowledgement that staff felt like they had input into their daily lives, uh, those kinds of things, I believe, and I've heard back that people feel that they were responded to. And, and uh, from a quantitative standpoint, our employee satisfaction surveys went up during the pandemic. So That's that was great. reassuring. Yeah, that was very reassuring. So I think that, you know, more than anything, one of my uh, community health center colleagues, she and I did a presentation recently in, um, on workforce, and her comment to the group was, make sure you tell your staff what's going on, because if you don't, they'll make it up. Yeah. They'll fill in the gaps on their own. And I just, that that was almost a year ago now, and that comment has stuck in my head. If you don't, if you don't tell them what's going on, they'll make, they'll make it up. And so I work, you know, really hard to try to fill in the gaps for them. Wow, I really like that. That's a really good lesson as a leader to keep in mind, Rhonda. Thank you for reminding me of that. David, how about you? How has your leadership evolved and what has been the impact on your workforce? I know for HOP, we definitely have been impacted um, during this uh, time of the great resignation and a shortage of staff. How has that affected you at LifeBong? That's a great question. And I think it's an incredibly complex one. You know, I, one of the things I've realized, even, you know, as a senior leader is that it's really important to be connected. And I don't know about you all, but I have missed the energy and the support we get from the hallway conversation, the sitting in the office and sorting through issues, being together, doing decision-making together in person is incredibly important. And so um, in, in, ab- in the absence of that, I think it's, it's, it's been a challenge. It's been a challenging to be a senior leader and a CEO in this role, in this role particularly as we encounter um, just increased, at least I have found in some of the colleagues I've talked with, oftentimes some increased cynicism about, about what our intentions really are at times. And I think it's because it's a hard slog it's a challenge that you know there's lots of patience to be seen and so to Rhonda's point you know, i found it necessary to to step it up a notch in terms of communication and and i call what Ra, what Rhonda said uh msuing 
making stuff up, but you can use stuff as a different word if you want to, but people will MS you when they don't know things. Yes. So we tried a couple, you know, um, electronic things. We have an in the loop communication, which sort of gives you the behind the scenes thinking of what senior leadership is thinking and what we're working on at times. I conduct uh, every month I have, uh, it's really a live podcast actually called Open Mic Monday. And on Open Mic Monday, uh, it's really an opportunity for staff to really unfilteredly uh, talk to me about their concerns. We present you know, current topics, but there is a, a portion where folks are able to ask questions. And I, I try to answer those in real time, uh, no matter how uncomfortable they may be. So I feel like trying to increase the transparency uh, is really important. We're about 1,100 FTEs, and I find that to be incredibly challenging. Uh, perhaps around with a smaller agency, you can kind of get your arms around things a little more. But I think with a thousand plus people, people really will come to a conclusion about what you are and what you're not doing. And I think while we can improve the communications, right, using electronic forms, I'm really much happier and looking forward to when I can get out and be with staff more regularly, sit in circles and hear about what's bothering them and how we can address that. You know, you get some defense wounds, you come out with a, a couple bruises and, and uh, from, from that kind of unfettered conversation, but it's, it's incredibly valuable, I think. Otherwise, folks will, will draw their own conclusions. For me as a senior leader, I'm, I'm a newbie compared to a lot of my colleagues. I've only got 22 years in community health and another 15 in, in, in practice. But what I have found is that that those of us that are in this space and have been doing this a long time are experiencing some fatigue. And I think the way that we, we lead and that we lead with gusto and fervor and energy is by being connected. Uh, with each other. At our most recent state conference, uh, it was really nice just to be in the hallway with five or six CEOs. We're all talking about, you know, similar topics. And, and, and that energy, I think, is really important. And then, of course, we, we really have to translate that energy and that stamina to staff and, and continue to lead the charge. But fundamentally, I've changed recognizing that we are dependent on one another and, try to, and trying to lead in isolation is, is, a, tough, is a tough slog. I agree with you, David, that I experienced very similar feelings during this pandemic trying to lead, um, particularly in a new role in a new um, organization in isolation and have tried to bring our HOP team together in a safe, intentional way so that we can build that connection. And at the point that we did that, felt that we started to turn the corner and come together as a team. And while we're a small organization, we're eight people versus over a thousand, it's tough to get your hands around it regardless when yeah. people are fearful and there's been so much change and a lot of stress and grief and burnout. And um, given that, you know, this pandemic has really exposed so many of the cracks in our healthcare system, as well as our um, workforce. And we see a lot of burnout and compassion fatigue, particularly amongst our frontline healthcare staff. Many um, health centers have seen staggering turnover and struggle to maintain the workforce. Have you seen the mental health impacts, Rhonda, on your workforce at your health center? Yes. 
Undoubtedly, yes. You know, we have we in a and you know our FTE count is a it norm in a normal year we average twelve to thirteen percent turnover. And uh, last year in twenty twenty one, in spite of the fact that we had great reviews from our patient satisfaction surveys, people felt that we were really trying to take care of them. We still had a thirty percent turnover. It was amazing. And then when I looked at that turnover and I had it broken out by department, it was really, it was people that in their jobs, primarily where other duties is assigned, took on all new meaning. It was our folks that we had previously, their jobs were primarily um, around case management, uh, people that typically would do home visits. It was our front desk staff. Uh, that had that all had excess of 30 to 40 percent turnover. We had a couple departments where they had in excess of 100 percent turnover in the course of the year. And these were people that, you know, primarily may have been hired to do home visits. And now they were doing uh, COVID screening and reception for vaccines and testing. So we we had a we recognized that we had a lot of work to do. We did um, you know a lot of the things that we did in terms of mental health were some of the things I mentioned earlier around providing you know comfort care so so that people knew that they care that we recognized what they were going through and we were trying to put care. A lot of our employees, some of the reasons that that they left us were they were definitely affected by the pandemic very personally within their own families. I mean, we had a lot of COVID deaths within our own staff and in their personal, their their immediate family members, fortunately not among our staff, but their immediate family members. So that had a huge impact. We had uh, in our our staff alone. We we you know deployed our behavioral health staff, our human resources. We revamped our uh, human resources team uh, to do some things around mental health first aid, uh, trauma informed care, to have more regular trainings around you know how to deal with the stress. That certainly was you know I'm sure many of us were looking at those kinds of activities for the staff, and then just other kinds of things that we could do. Uh, we also gave more uh, additional paid time off for staff. Uh, we we increased that uh, in the beginning. We added new banks of COVID time off uh, so that people could use, could have paid leave when they needed it and uh, to take care of themselves or family members. So, you know, increasing the amount of leave that people had available. And then as we're coming out of it, which we're not out of it, but uh, we did uh, add to everyone's bank additional paid leave time for just time away uh, for people. So those That's things really nice. Yeah, I'm sure your staff appreciate that. Well, and they last for a certain amount of time. So we have to keep, you know, it's like what, what we gave, what we gave people a month ago, um, you know, was really great at the time, but we have to keep uh, emphasizing, you know, how we take care of each other and finding those rewards on a daily basis. I think that's what I'm really finding is, and again, it goes back to the ongoing communication. Thank you for sharing that. David, tell me, how has your health center been impacted by turnover and how can leadership make a difference? Well, we've been dramatically impacted. In fact, we're in the union negotiations on two fronts and are reminded all the time that this is a 
a reality, turnovers reality. I, I just want to make sure, because I'm sure some of my staff will hear this, that I articulate just how proud I am of the, the stamina and the durability that people have shown, you know, during this. And we became more aware of really the need to address mental health very specifically. I'd like us to do more. We added some additional time mental health day. But that's really symbolic for a broader strategy that we're we want to roll out that has more to do. I'm understanding that the best thinking, and maybe HOP can train to this and it is trained to do this, about alleviating some of the mental health is peer-to-peer support. Um, and we've talked to a number of leading experts. In fact, the folks that did our retreat um, uh, at HOP when I was still on the board, um, Ashley and Dave Logan, Ashley Rodriguez and Dave Logan are really experts in this space. And, and we hope to, at some point, put in a formal a wellness institute structure into the organization that will directly address this in a meaningful way. Um, the time off is important, but I want to make sure we have other elements in place. So we, we're delaying that a bit because we're in the midst of, of sort of reinforcing our commitment to diversity, equity, um, inclusion, and, and belonging in our establishing uh, work there. So um, another area that, that has been sort of that's been ongoing in terms of my work and tenure here is our, our pillars that we have at Lifelong, which are appreciation, training, and leadership. And so for almost the past two years, I've been trying to build more appreciation infrastructure in the organization, which is really intentional about saying, uh, you know, we, we appreciate you, we recognize your years of service, and we have a number of elements that go into um, uh, appreciation. We rolled out a bonus program based on years of service um, that we we hope will say to our, our, our team that we value them. And then some other accoutrements that are part of that. To me, that again, that, that never is re really enough, but um, a, a, an organization should not be absent a culture of disciplined routine, thank you, we appreciate you, yes, please, and, and, and to be mindful of, of how we recognize and appreciate each other. So uh, after this call, our appreciation subcommittee will meet, we'll talk about the, the, the important issues that are on the table that we wanna work on, uh, and then hopefully communicate that out to staff. So I, I think that can roll up and impact me mental health, but I think, um, I think pay equity, is an important matter for many of us in community health centers to address. We're working on that. Um, we want to um, make sure there is, uh, you know, pay equity and there are ladders and there are ways folks to advance in the community health center movement so that it continues. And so we continue to remain focused on some of those key elements. All right. Thank you, David. And actually, HOP, just before uh, we joined um, today to have this discussion, talked among ourselves as a team about what our organizational wellness and self-care um, overarching, like our charter statement around that was going to be for our own organization. And as an organization, we have been focusing a lot on what we call organizational self-care and our approach that moves beyond just our personal self-care, but a collective responsibility as an organization to support our staff and what that means for our organization's leadership, as well as our individual team members and our policies and our procedures. And um, 
I'm going to ask you both to tell me a little bit about what your health center has been incorporating as far as organizational self-care, some of it of which you just touched on. But I do want to circle back, David. HOP has uh, written a program and a curriculum called the Wellness Academy, and I'm happy to share that with both of you. It is um, really relies on peer-to-peer support, and I'm happy to share that with you just as a side note. But Rhonda, could you tell us Does Yakima Neighborhood Health Services, do they have an organizational self-care policy? Are you incorporating any um, collective activities that support your staff's self-care or wellness? Well, I think I've talked a little bit about this, but uh, we last year, the year before, we added a position um, within our organization as a jet of a Jedi manager, that justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. And part of Jean's role is really to um, provide ongoing support and training with our staff around things like mental health first aid and trauma-informed care within the organization. Just before this meeting, uh, this call, uh, I was meeting with um, some of my coworkers around some of the things that that uh, David just talked about, it's made me smile because we are just rolling out our, uh, he referred to it as appreciation activities. We are talking about, we refer to it as our retention activities. And we, we are a staff of about 330 employees. And I was taken aback in spite of the uh, turnover comments that I made earlier that we had, we had nearly a hundred employees that have been with us 10 years or more. And we were just looking at the list and we're starting with uh, appreciation bonuses for 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, and 40 years. So we have uh, a couple people that have been on the or- uh, with the organization 40 years or more. We have several that have been 25, 30, and 35 years, and then a whole slug of people at 10 years or more. So trying to do more to recognize uh, their contributions. Um, and then we just went through our just rolling out this month in December, uh, a market analysis around uh, pay equity. So very similar strategies um, using a consultant to help us, you know, make sure that we stay above the curve. Um, likewise, you know, I, I think we have the best employees in the world, the best heart, the best mission and the best values. And they need we need to make sure that we're expressing that not only in thank yous and um, and how we how we talk and speak with each other, but they need to feel it uh, when they take their paycheck home as well. And so we're trying to make sure that we stay above the curve um, in those sense. And then, you know, what we've learned, uh, I think the other challenge, and I, boy, I am still learning on this, is we have employees that are 18 years old, and we have employees that are 60 plus years old, and the needs and the wants of the uh, generational workforces are so different. And I spend a lot of time, you know, under listening uh, to the employees, uh, learning from the needs of the different generations and what they value the most. And for some, you know, half of the group, it's time and half of the group, it's money and trying to find the right balance and create options. And we've done things like uh, the ability to cash out time if you don't want all the time. And so we've built some new flexibilities into our benefit structure uh, this year as well. And so I think that, you know, trying to trying to give everybody the best of both worlds or the best of either world, uh, I think are some of the things that, some of the lessons that we have learned 
um, through this to try to make ourselves an employer of choice. Yeah, it definitely has taught us all, I think, in our leadership to be flexible and look at things in new ways. And that one set of policies does not always um, serve our entire team. David, how about lifelong? What organizational self-care policies or activities is lifelong engaging in? We're fortunate to have a wellness coordinator who is an RN who is really versed in a number of different disciplines. Mindful momenting, Tai Chi, and a couple other arts that are that she's worked in that she helps um, us think through in terms of its application. So we do have, led by our, our deputy medical officer, pretty regular, a regular mindful moment time where meditation and that kind of activity um, can, can happen. Um, we're really trying to inspire this at the local level. And so I don't have a lot of other structural type of you know, programs that I could share with you that we're doing other than reminding folks that they have banks of time that they should use to do self-care. So um, we will continue to, to develop that and have some very specific programming in, in the future. But we've really started with gathering folks and, and, and breathing and slowing down and taking time, thinking about uh, the important things in life and, and, our, and our patient base, of course. Um, th this effort to be rested and effective is only because that impacts patient outcomes, the way that we laugh and the way that we, you know, the way we think about the patients that we serve and our intentions. I think all of these things show up in, in our quality measures. What we do as health centers is very impactful. We radiate positive clinical outcomes across the community. And in doing so, we see a reduction in blood pressure. We see a change in uh, ER utilization because we, we were, as a primary care provider, applying these important, um, these important wellness strategies and, and they show up in the community. That's why it's so important that we're well. Yes. Amen to that. Amen to that. Well, I want to thank you both very much for being part of our podcast and there is no doubt that the COVID-19 pandemic has deeply impacted our health systems across the country, as well as our individual workplaces. And um, before we conclude today, I'd like um, each of you to tell me like one piece of advice on leadership you'd like um, listeners to take away. And I, I think about this for myself. I think what I've learned in this experience for sure is that, um, I think you just said it, David, that we have to really like be in the moment and really like celebrate the small things I heard Rhonda say and really just appreciate one another and try our very best to take care of each other. Rhonda, like, what would you like to have our listeners take away from this public health crisis? Well, you know, I actually thought about this a lot, and I, I don't have anything profound to say, but I think the two things that have gotten me through, um, and many of my, not just me, but many of my coworkers and I, the first is that humor matters, that you have to find reasons to laugh through it and find opportunities to you know, joke with each other, laugh with each other. And, you know, laughter, I think, just makes a huge difference in so many things in so many ways. And then the other was just a, a saying that I heard again from, from a speaker not too long ago. She made the comment that it's an old saying, and I, but I'm sorry, I don't know who said it first, was optimism is the belief that your behavior matters. 
And my daughter is a graphic artist and I've asked her to make me something that I could put up in my office because I believe as a leader, um, without being overly optimistic, I believe that that impacts behavior. Optimism is a belief that your behavior matters. And over this, since the pandemic, um, you know, we have always found a way to improve somebody's life. And some days it's one person and some days it's many people. But if we can improve the life of one person by making one thing happen, then I feel good when I go home at the end of the day. And to me, that is a successful, I feel good putting my head on the pillow at night if I've improved somebody's life. And that's better than doing nothing. Yeah, thank you. David? I love that. There's so much there that Rhonda said. I, I'm, I think I'm kind of known for reminding folks that the root history and the root structure, the origin story of community health centers is in the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And the great leadership of uh, Dr. Jack Geiger and and the and the many leaders that supported this work, so that this movement would exist. And let us remember that um, we are uh, birthed out of struggle, and we come from a deep, rich heritage. That means we need to make sure that we have future leaders and that we keep the momentum moving long past uh, the retirement of Rhonda or I. Um, and I think that the motive here, and we're afraid to talk about this, it seems like it's only reserved for church or synagogue or the, the mosque or at home. Love. Mm-hmm. Love is a driving factor. And I think many of us love this work very, very much. And we love the communities that we serve. But the people that come to work for us, they they have love and they have dedication to the communities that we serve. And I think we ought to maybe open up a little space without it feeling too gushy to talk about what that means in terms of the commitments that we that we we hold as an organization, as a movement, and let that be our motive. In addition to providing and elevating the outcomes in, uh, of the communities that we serve, we love the people that we serve. And I think that can help us bring a little relief when we rely on that deep source and that deep well of love that we have and our hearts and not be afraid to say that that's why we do this work. Well, that it, I, I mean, I agree with that hundred percent. And that just moves me to like, I have the, now I feel it, David. So thank you. Thank you so much. I want to thank you both for um, joining us. Thank you for participating in our podcast today. I thank you for your hard work and for serving your communities. I, um, I also, feel so dedicated to the health center movement. And I, I'm very grateful for both of you. So thank you. Thank Thank you for having us. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of health outreach partners podcast, the COVID-19 pandemic and what it taught us. This publication was supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration of the United States Department of Health and Human Services under grant number U3FCS4-1848-0100, a National Training and Technical Assistance Cooperative Agreement under American Rescue Plan Act funding in the amount of $211,821. This information or content and conclusions are those of the author and should not be construed as the official position or policy of, nor should any endorsements be inferred by, HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. Thank you.